0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that we're studying your word and that we're doing it in the company of brothers and sisters who are of like mind and spirit, Father, united in the oneness of a spirit called to to be together, to pray for one another, to uh, fellowship and to study in your word. Guide my teaching, Father, direct my words, and Father, I pray the Spirit would be the one who teaches. In Jesus' name, amen. We will go into chapter four tonight. We're back at the point of Peter in the temple at the end of chapter 3. Remember, he's just healed a lame man. And he's preaching to a Jewish crowd in the temple, the crowd that's assembled around him because they saw the the healing and they were amazed by it. So at the very end of 3, we remember Peter's finishing statements as he's preached to the crowd in response to their noticing of him doing this miracle in the temple. He said in verse 25, he says, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. First, he has offered to this crowd a presentation of the gospel, but it was a very unique one. And if you remember last week, we said that the Uniqueness of Peter's presentation in the temple was in the way it spoke to a future series of events. It was very eschatological in its focus. He talked about a time of refreshing for the Jews, a time living in the presence of the Lord, and in keeping with the Abrahamic covenant, which you saw him allude to here in chapter 3, verse 25, this promise in which all the earth will be blessed. That's not traditional gospel preaching, as we would typically say today to someone, come know the Lord. But to Peter's way of thinking, he's calling the Jewish people of his day to repent and receive the very, the very same Messiah they had just earlier convicted and put to death on the cross. And his call, in the way you see it at the end of 3, emphasizes that there is an opportunity for the Jewish nation to enter this time of refreshing and enjoy the presence of the Lord. He is assuming, Peter is assuming, that if he could compel the entire nation of Israel, as it was constituted in his day, to receive the call of the gospel, then Christ the Messiah would return and would reign in the kingdom that's promised. If all of Israel believes, Jesus comes back. That is the promise of Scripture. We've studied that in here already. That will be the mechanism that prompts Christ's second coming, the nation of Israel turning back to him. But that's not destined to happen in Peter's day, and it hasn't obviously happened even to our day today. That is that is a thing that waits for fulfillment in the time of tribulation, on the last day of tribulation. We looked at last week how Zechariah 12 is the picture of that or the description of that event. Joel 2, which is where we saw Peter's sermon originate from in the moment of Pentecost, that also describes that same series of events, the nation of Israel receiving their Messiah. Remember something as we study Peter. We said, I think, at the beginning of this study that the book of Acts can be divided along several different lines, but one way to divide the book is Peter versus Paul. And except for chapter 9, which gives us the conversion moment of Saul on the road to Damascus, except for that one chapter, the first half of the book of Acts is basically all Peter, and then the second half is basically all Paul. We're at the Peter half here, of course. We're still looking at Peter. Getting to know this guy is a part of learning the book of Acts. And not just know him for what he says or for his history as an apostle and so on, but getting into his mind a little bit, understanding how he interpreted his own events of his day, what he thought was happening. If you know the book of Galatians or if you've read the book of Acts already, then you already know some history on Peter and the fact that he had struggles with reaching Gentiles for the gospel. Here you see some reasoning behind that to to give the guy a, a fair shake. You have to appreciate where he's coming from and The Old Testament prophets, which is all the Bible that Peter would have had, the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets never anticipated, much less understood, an institution like the church, meaning the Gentile Church. They never anticipated that. It was literally a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is a is a a revelation of God's plan or a component of God's plan that's previously unknown, but now has been revealed. A mystery means that there has been something hidden so that at a later day it would be revealed. By God's providence, by his sovereign work, that hiding is a complete effort. It does not allow for knowledge until the revealing takes place. So until Paul was equipped and called to reveal the mystery of the Gentile church, no amount of self-inspection of the text would ever have arrived at an understanding that is ultimately arrived at only through the revealing of the mystery. One of the mysteries of the New Testament was the fact that there would be a church period of time, a time in which Gentiles would be the predominant audience for the saving work of God. Paul even says this was a mystery and says he himself was the one appointed to reveal the mystery when he writes in Ephesians in chapter three, verse one. I'll just read you a few short verses to show you what Paul says about this mystery. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the sake of you Gentiles, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And to be specific... That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. It's wordy in the Greek, so it comes off poorly in the, in the English. But his point is, he said, I am a prisoner for the sake of the Gentiles. If you haven't already heard, he said, I was given this stewardship of a mystery. That mystery being specifically, he said, that the Gentiles are to be included in God's plan of salvation. We call that group of Gentile believers the church. That's not what Peter understands. So put yourself in Peter's position. He knows Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that his return is is promised. He knows that the nation of Israel must receive their Messiah if he's to come back for them. And he's been left behind by that Messiah with a mission to preach the gospel to the nation of Israel. So his impression is, if I can just get all of these these unrepentant, stubborn Jews to finally accept that what they just did to Jesus was crucify their Messiah, I can get this back to where it should be and Jesus will return. Lickety split. So at this early point in his ministry, Peter had not yet appreciated the mystery himself much less begun to teach it to anyone else. So despite his best efforts, no matter how hard he worked at this moment in the temple, Peter was not going to convince the nation of Israel, this generation anyway, to receive the Lord's return. They were under judgment. They were under judgment for rejecting the Messiah. And so as a generation, they were not going to get a second opportunity. That was already set in stone by God. And therefore, though an individual Jew could receive Messiah and be saved, The nation, the generation in total, was not going to be given the opportunity to see their return. Let's look at now how the story evolves forward from here. And by the way, as we watch the gospel spread in the course of the book of Acts, I want you to watch as Peter grows in conjunction with that spread. He's going to grow from a man who thinks he can bring Israel to grace in a moment, to a man who believes he's got to bring the gospel to the nation of Israel uh, with a longer view, to a man who understands it's got to go to the Samaritans, to ultimately a man who's willing to acknowledge it has to go to the Gentiles. He grows to that point. Okay, after preaching this sermon to the people, he would naturally catch the attention of the leadership because he, as you'll see in the text here in a minute, he has 5,000 people believe on the basis of this sermon. You thought Pentecost was big. He has 5,000 people converted in this moment in the temple. And many of the leaders who are now going to be noticing this event in the temple are the very same men who persecuted and conspired against Jesus. So when they see this commotion in the temple ground and they notice Jesus' disciples at the center of this attention, at the center of this crowd, you can imagine the kind of quick reaction that that will take place. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So Peter and, it says, John, because in verse 1 it says they were speaking. So it's apparently both men addressing the crowd. They're in mid-sentence when they're interrupted by the temple officials. And three groups of priests here are mentioned. And in reality, they're all probably from the same group of temple leaders. Here's how the temple structure would work for leadership. You found priests, of course, perform various jobs. They have various functions in their, in their service in the temple. Some priests would act as guards. Think of them as temple police. And one of those temple guards would be the captain of the guard. He was second in command only to the high priest himself. They had their own hierarchy within the temple. The Sadducees were the ruling council of 24 chief priests who controlled the temple ground. So they became the the ruling authority responsible for operations at the temple. So you have priests, temple guard, Sadducees, but they're all priests. They're all in there for the same reason. They're all monitoring the conduct inside the temple. So it's not unreasonable for them to jump into this situation. That's their job, keeping peace in the temple. The phrase, though, in verse one in the Greek probably should read not that they came up to them, but that they confronted them. The sense of the word in Greek is that they were there was a hostility to their confrontation right from the start. And they were immediately bothered when they determined two things. Two things bothered the group. They were teaching the people in the compound. First problem is, you're teaching. Just the mere act of teaching. In Israel, teaching on spiritual matters was not permitted unless that person had been carefully trained and had been vetted or approved by Jewish authorities. And teaching in the temple was considered the highest honor for teachers like getting a call to the big leagues you don't go into the temple and just start teaching because you feel like it there was a closely watched heavily regulated kind of activity you may remember in the days before jesus was crucified in the holy week and the week of passover he went into the temple for the last two or three days he was alive before the the passion and he would teach every day in the temple and if you remember the the pharisees and the sadducees and the elders and the chief priests and so on would come before him the scribes and in each of those encounters the question usually came to what is your authority or by whose authority do you teach in this place? And they were challenging him repeatedly because they wanted him to substantiate who had given him the right to come into the temple and teach in the way he was teaching. They couldn't indict him though because his teaching had power to confront them. They would try to trick him and he would turn it around on them and they looked like the fools. By his teaching, he was substantiating his own right to teach. The second reason they get mad at him is they were teaching, number one. Number two, they were teaching the resurrection of the dead, particularly Jesus. But it wasn't so much Jesus. I mean, I think they got upset at his name in general, but it was more just the principle that he was teaching resurrection. Remember the Sadducees, their distinctive theological difference from Pharisees was that they did not believe in angels and they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And the old uh, funny way of thinking or remembering it is the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't have any hope for resurrection. So they hear this talk of resurrection and immediately they get fired up. Remember, they control the temple. So would you think that they allow teachers to come in and teach resurrection inside the temple grounds? No, they would never have permitted it, so they were immediately going to fight it. So consider the dangerous trap that existed in Peter's day when it comes to the issue of teaching the crowd or teaching in general. On the one hand, teaching on spiritual matters was allowed only by teachers who had been approved by existing leaders and teachers. Secondly, those new teachers could only teach What was approved by men, even if that teaching was in conflict with scripture. That's why Jesus condemned the leaders in that day when he was alive. When he said in Matthew 15, verse seven, he said, you hypocrites rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain, they do worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They were teaching precepts of men as if they were doctrines. That is, as if they were God's truth. And since they controlled who could teach, then they could ensure the truth was suppressed and their views were implanted instead in the minds of the people because you couldn't teach without their approval. And do I even need to make a parallel to today? Men today are often required to complete certain sanctioning or or ordination requirements before they can teach God's word. And those sanctioning bodies will obviously insist that those who graduate from their programs adhere to certain prescribed views on doctrine or they're not acceptable graduates They're not acceptable in that program. And that pattern, I think, explains the very existence of denominations, because you have church bodies, ironically, separated by a common religion. But that separation is man derived because it's built on a thinking that you can only be from us if you agree with us and we don't want you to teach unless you agree with us. It's a control of thought. Now, it may not be as insidious to the extent it was in the temple, but we can't kid ourselves. It's a slippery slope, right? That's how we get from Orthodox Christianity down to Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and things that seem to be on a continuum, but in reality are far from the truth. You get there in a series of of sliding steps that start with, here's what we believe. If you're going to teach with us, here's what you have to teach. Rather than The the standard that says we have a Bible that gives us God's word and that is the standard and we have to always come back to it and adjust our denominational view accordingly. And if somebody else was allowed to teach freely within a given group, you have the potential for self-correction in that kind of a circumstance where the denomination gets off track. Someone else may be brought into the fold who has a better view and can bring them back only as long, though, as the group is willing to accept teaching outside its orthodoxy. And that's that's a teachable heart that you don't see often anymore. The Sadducees here wanted to seek people only who would believe what they already believe. You remember, Paul says in the last days, people would become men who would not sit for sound doctrine, but wanted to have their ears tickled, will accumulate to themselves teachers of their own liking or of their own desires. The way you get there is when you no longer will sit to hear anyone teach anything you don't already agree with. If you think about that, that's how you get to what Paul is warning about. In the last days, people stop listening to teaching they don't agree with. So if somebody says something you know is wrong, you protest by standing up and walking out of the room. That's your silent way of saying, you just taught something wrong, I'm leaving. Well, it could be wrong, but how do you know you're not wrong? The only way you'll know is if you sit for it long enough to make a careful evaluation against Scripture. You have to be willing to listen to something you don't like if you're ever going to be corrected on anything you're wrong on. Now, that doesn't mean every time you hear something you don't agree with that you're the one who's wrong, but the point is you've got to be willing. In the last days, people stop listening to people they don't agree with. Obviously, some people are unqualified to teach. But the standard for whether they should or shouldn't teach are already provided in Scripture. You have qualifications that are not based on where they go to seminary or ordination or other man-made certifications. They're based on tests of character and maturity. And ultimately, that teaching is evaluated against the light of Scripture, not against denominational creeds. Moving back to the text, the guards ask Peter and John, after they take him into custody, they, they bring him in and they say in the text that they were put in jail my english version says jail the word in greek is not jail at all it's actually just they were kept and and that's just i think a, a subtle way of saying they were restrained or they were they were held probably in a room in the temple in jewish law you cannot try at night noticing that didn't stop them when it came to jesus but the law says you couldn't try someone at night so they take them and put them until the next morning and then they conduct an inquiry and Luke ends verse 4 with this stunning contrast. Even as Peter and John are arrested for speaking truth, 5,000 men who hear Peter's sermon come to believe in Jesus. It's hard to imagine how Peter could have stood and spoken in an open courtyard, unmiked, obviously, and expected to speak loudly enough so that 5,000 people could even hear him, much less 5,000 hearers believe. I mean, it's a striking thing to consider the outer courtyard was a huge open air place. Sound would just go out and you know, not come back. How do you speak loudly enough for 5,000 people to hear? It's really a remarkable scene. I think much more remarkable than Pentecost in that respect. Luke's coupling of the persecution moment with this growth moment is an example of something that's well known in church history. Persecution in the same sentence as 5,000 believers. And that's, in a nutshell, a pattern that's existed since the early church. The times when the church has endured its greatest persecution are also the times when the church has seen its greatest growth. Percentage-wise, it's fastest growth. And growth under persecution is particularly good growth because it filters out false confessors. It's a pure kind of growth, not a man-made or superficial kind of growth. It usually results in a particularly strong and mature believer dedicated to the faith in an unusually strong way because they've had to come into it against any self-interest, against anything that they might have wanted to have for themselves. And whenever the enemy seems to decide he's going to strike out at church growth, and does it through persecution? The Spirit inevitably uses that occasion to grow the church rather than to see it diminished. Inevitably. And that's been true with the early church under Jewish persecution, as you see it kind of beginning here. Roman persecution under Nero. Roman Catholic persecution in the Dark Ages during and, and particularly into the time of Reformation. Those periods of church growth were strikingly stronger than anything before or after. And they coincide with these periods of persecution. The church is growing very strong in some Muslim countries right now under persecution. In China, it grew very strongly under persecution. What's interesting to me, though, is there is a correlation to that. It's not spelled out in the Bible so much, although the the letter to Laodicea in in the book of Revelation would allude to this correlation. And the correlation is that when the church is fat, dumb, and happy, it's at its weakest. So when it's under persecution, it's growing strong with a real certainty to the core faith of those in, in the church. But when it's under no persecution, when it's easygoing, the church is, if not stagnant, it's brittle. It may have a shell that looks big and meaningful, but it's hollow. It's a very weak, perhaps even unbelieving church. That would be the, the Laodicean church. Acts 4, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas, and John, Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center... They began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? We'll stop just for a second. I want to look at this group. It's a remarkable group assembled here to interrogate just these two men. You have the entire Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel in that day. You have Sadducees. You would have had Pharisees. You had the high priest. In fact, you had the entire family of the high priest there. Remember, there were two high priests ruling in that day, going back to when Jesus was crucified. And that's because the Romans had taken the true high priest and deposed him and put his uh, son-in-law in in place. You have both the father-in-law and the son-in-law here, along with some other extended family. So it's an unusually powerful and complete assembly of the religious leadership of Israel. Why? Because two guys healed somebody in the middle of the temple. But there's more going on than that. They recognize there's more going on than that. And by the way, you notice the physical arrangement. They're at the center. So you, it's like they're in the, in the middle of a round center area, or they're, they're ra- uh, surrounded, I guess, by the leadership. So it's particularly intimidating. You, there's always someone looking at your back. Their focus was on the healing. I f- that should be an interesting point to note. Their interest here was not so much in the fact that these men were teaching or proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. I, you know, Those claims by themselves posed no threat. If those claims had lived... Outside of the power of that healing, they were just idle claims and they were boastful claims, but they were meaningless claims at the end. These leaders were disturbed by the powerful miracle that accompanied that teaching. And by that fact, I think you begin to understand why the Lord chose to award these kinds of powers to the apostles in the early church, because the ability for them to perform these kinds of miracles in conjunction with the teaching was a key component to gain the attention of both the crowds and the leadership. If you could have divorced the teaching from the miracles and and tried to present only the message, God's power to make it efficacious wouldn't have been any less. But from the point of view of quickly growing an audience, it was a far more effective ploy to show the power of the message in these miracles than to do it simply with the power of the words. That you see reflected in the way these men react. It would have been relatively easy for them to dismiss what they heard Peter and John saying. They could have dismissed it all as crazy. It's another thing altogether, though, to dismiss an obvious healing. They couldn't do that. So look at the questions they asked the apostle, the first question. They want to know where their power came from to perform the healing. What I love about the questions and these inquiries you'll see here, and there's some later ones in the book as well of Acts, when you look at the way these questions are formed and and the way these conversations develop, you learn an awful lot about what's going on in the minds of these men, what they're really worried about, what they're really thinking about. They want to know, in this case, where the power came from to perform the healing. This is very similar to the kind of questioning they asked in John chapter 9. The guy that got the mud put on his eyes, remember? And after he opens his eyes and sees, Jesus is gone, so he doesn't know who healed him. And when he goes to the authorities and they say, how in the world did someone born blind get healed? That's a remarkable miracle. Who did this? And the guy said, well, I don't know. This person who came by that I've never seen did it. This Jesus person. And remember the Pharisees and the leadership said, Who is he? Is he of God or is he of Satan? Or they were trying to figure out the source of Jesus's power. And the blind man sarcastically mocks the leaders because the leaders pretended to not know the source of this power. And the blind man says, it's obvious to me and everyone else. Why can't you figure it out? In other words, if someone is healed from blindness, having been born blind, the only answer to who could have made that happen is God. God being the one who made the body, God having the power for these things. That's got to be from God. But he mocked the leadership for their feigned ignorance over the source of the power. The leaders acted as if the answer to to the question, who did this, was a mystery because they couldn't bring themselves to admit Jesus had the power of God. So the only other option they had was to say, we're not sure where this comes from. It's a mystery. Their personal and their political interests forced them to pretend that they were ignorant or just to deny it altogether. Well, here you have the men doing the same thing. The men ask for the name or the power behind the healing But the answer here is just as obvious as it was in the case of John chapter 9. But in this case, rather than mocking them, Peter takes the high road and he gives them a straightforward answer. Verse 8, he said, Peter says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builder, uh, the, by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So if you're counting, this is Peter's third sermon in as many chapters. It's clear at this point. Peter's become God's instrument during those early days to speak on behalf of the Lord to Israel. And just like his prior sermons, he speaks under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'm assuming here that Luke points out that Peter's speech is under the influence of the Holy Spirit because he's reminding his audience, who is particularly Theophilus and us now, of course, of something Luke himself wrote earlier in the gospel account, in which he said in Luke 12:11, this is Jesus speaking, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Luke, having wrote those very words, now has the chance to reinforce their truth by making note of the fact that here Peter is speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so to the leaders of Israel, Peter, speaking under the influence of the Spirit, says, Jesus is the one doing this healing. And he... He not so diplomatically reminds them that they were the ones who crucified that very same Jesus. Now, what brings on that kind of boldness? It's easy to divorce yourself from the emotion of the moment. You have to think carefully about what it would feel like to be at the mercy of men who had a lot of control and power over your future. No lawyers, no Supreme Court, no no appeals. This is it. The tendency, the natural human tendency, is to look for conciliatory statements to look for some means of working it out and as a christian you might even be thinking well let me do it in such a way that i don't have to compromise my witness but even in the thinking we're already compromising our witness right we're already looking for a way to save our skin while still presenting the gospel notice this is under the influence of the holy spirit so we should see this as an example of what we would do as a christian if this is what the spirit does then let that be our standard what would you do then peter had good reason to fear his life He knows he's in trouble already for what he's already said, but the Spirit did not allow him to focus on his own safety. The Spirit put him in a position to declare forcefully, boldly, to the face of these men, something that would inevitably enrage them against him. Which means there was no concern or regard given for whether or not what he spoke would put his own life at risk. His own life is not the point. We cannot have as a governor on our willingness to be bold in presenting what we believe a concern of how it would reflect on us or how it's going to impact us in any context. It's easy to say hard to do, but that's the message of the scriptures is that the men were called to sacrifice anything and everything so that the message would not have anything holding it back. Trusting that if today's my day, then this is the means God's using to take me off this earth. If today's not my day, then I have nothing to worry about. In a comment that must have particularly angered the Sadducees, he repeats, Peter repeats the claim of resurrection here. I find that one to be particularly interesting because he said something just in the fact of mentioning resurrection again that he knew was going to stir them up. I mean, there's no way it couldn't have. He says, it was the name of Jesus who healed the man standing before you, Peter says. So what that tells us now is obviously they took the lame man into custody too and held him overnight, presumably. Probably because they wondered if the whole thing maybe had been a hoax. Imagine from the poor lame man's point of view. You haven't walked ever. You're 40 years old. The day you get a chance to walk and run, they lock you up. Moving forward, he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, that Jesus would be the most important stone in the building that God is building in Israel. We know these verses. Isaiah has a similar statement. When you see this verse today, it's typically understood today to be a reference to how Jesus is the cornerstone that begins the church, right? I'm not saying that's wrong, but in context of where these verses are found, Isaiah and Psalms 118, its meaning is not in the context of the church. Its meaning is in the context of Israel. And in its context, it means that Jesus is a stone that serves as the foundation for God establishing an obedient, glorified Israel. In fact, if you go to Psalm 118 and you look at what immediately follows, verse 22, which is the one Peter quoted, what immediately follows in the rest of that psalm, is David speaking of the regeneration of Israel in the coming kingdom. So he begins his discussion of what Israel will be like in the kingdom by talking about Jesus as the cornerstone for that established Israel. So it's not wrong to say the church is a part of that, certainly, but it's true fulfillment is seen in Israel, not in us. So he says that stone, the one that is of the name Jesus, was rejected by Israel's builders, who he now names. Who are the builders? The ones who are, quote, building Israel. Israel who actually rejected the one and only stone that was necessary to build the Israel they say they wanted. Well, the Israel leaders of the day, which are the ones he's talking to, he says, you're the guys who stumbled over that stone and rejected it, though it's the essential cornerstone for what you say you're trying to build in Israel, which is a godly people or a a worshiping people. Finally, ends with his succinct presentation of the gospel. You have to believe in this name. It's the only name you can believe in. So now, in response to what Peter says, the council now begins to make some observations. So let's look at the next phase of this uh, trial or of this inquiry. Verse 13. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Uh, but so that it will not spread any further among the, among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. So look at what these guys observe, these, this council. First, they make observations of Peter and John themselves. So the first set of observations are directed toward the apostles. They were... Untrained, uneducated men, you could say blue collar men, working class men, no threat in the sense of how the elite educated ruling class would have seen this kind of person, no threat, an insignificant member of society. And then furthermore, they recognize that they had been part of Jesus's group, Jesus's disciples. And that's not a compliment, obviously. It puts another strike against them in their attempt to explain the unexplainable. They first consider that. Maybe these men might have had the power in their own right. They may have been the source of this power in and of themselves. What is it about these men now that could explain what we've seen? Can we explain it away through them somehow? They had just heard them speak, or Peter particularly had spoken eloquently, with authority, with knowledge, with confidence, out of Scripture. And yet they were uneducated and untrained. So there's a dissonance there, a contradiction. They don't understand it. That's why they marvel at it. These are men who can't understand how knowledge could come except through the approved means, the means by which we train men. And then when they take that into conjunction with the fact that they were an acquaintance to a convicted criminal, so they're of the criminal class now, they're not even just of the working class, and literally that's how Jesus was seen. He was a convicted criminal. That makes them all the more hard to explain. How does somebody from that background have anything to say of the power that just came out of his mouth? That's precisely the way Christ wants us to be seen by the world precisely the way they were not trained by men they were trained by the Holy Spirit and so they displayed a knowledge and a power out of keeping with their station in life Paul describes it in first Corinthians you may know first Corinthians chapter 1 verse 27 to that church he said God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. This is not random. It's not happenstance. It is purposeful. We should apply the same thinking. Look around. There are not many of you who are wise. There are not many of you who are noble, right? The reality of it is, from the world's point of view, we may like each other just dandy, but if we went to the truly elite classes of society in our world today, we are nothing from their point of view. And rightly so. But from God's point of view, all the better for us. For in a weak vessel, his glory is seen to be stronger than if he housed his glory in seemingly strong vessels. And... Peter is talking before the ruling and elite class of his day, seen as the uneducated, untrained man of that day, a consorter of criminals. And from that point of view, he is puzzling them to no end. Exactly what God wanted to do. Shame and make foolish the wise. By the contrast between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. So it thwarts their efforts at finding an answer by looking at the men. You notice the wisdom of God in working this way. Had Peter or John, been wise and trained and educated, rabbinically prepared and so on, then what would these men have said in response to the healing and to this inquiry? They would have likely attributed it to the men. They would have said, this is what you get when you train right. This is what happens when you're under good teaching and good rabbinical training. This is what happens when when you follow the Lord strictly in your living of the law and so on and so forth. They would have explained it away in that manner. You see that today when... Men who have a powerful ministry but come from a strong pedigree, we associate the two. I'm not against pedigrees or seminaries or training or any of that sort, but the problem is when we make it a substitute for the work of the Spirit, we end up with men who valued their own thinking and training and wisdom and not God's power through them. The dilemma was the facts didn't add up to what they saw because of the way they colored their view of what was happening in their own mind. God has put us in a position to be more powerful with the presentation of the gospel when we come at it having not succumbed or or given in to the world's methods of certification except as it benefits the gospel. This is truly, I hope, spoken from a point of view that, that recognizes the value of training but recognizes that training is ultimately from the Lord, right? The the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us all things. He may accomplish that through a structured program at at a recognized university, or he may do it in the quiet office of my house late at night as I study on my own. Neither is more valid than the other. The point is when we make one a substitute for the other, when we say going to an institution is equivalent to being taught by the Holy Spirit, and that by going and getting a degree, I've achieved all that's necessary to be seen as someone who can teach. Ultimately, the teaching role anyone plays is vetted by maturity, character, and ultimately whether what they say can stand the test of Scripture. But what they're searching for here here is something that the crowd would accept as logical reasoning for explaining it away. When they say, everyone already knows about it, what are we going to tell them? The goal is to explain it away so as to diminish the meaning of of the message that went with it. But they're looking for the hook. Could they explain it away as these men are just spiritually gifted and capable of doing these special things? That doesn't work. Their next approach is to look at the man himself who was healed in the text. The next thing was to look at the guy. If they couldn't explain the healing by finding powers in John or Peter that could explain it, then maybe they could discredit the healing itself. That would be the next logical thought. And they look at the guy and it says they have nothing they can say because I love the way the text puts it. Luke says the man who was lame was standing before them. The fact that a lame man was standing before them was pretty much all that you needed to see. It didn't really, there's not much you can say to that. That's the beauty of that. You know, they were stuck with him. They go, well, can't go there. There's nothing to say about that. Part of, I think, God's genius in the way that this man's life was used to glorify God is that he had been present at the temple every day for many years. There was no denying his history. You can see God's purpose in this, in leaving the man in his handicapped state for 40 years. You ask questions about how someone in a debilitated state could be useful to God for his own glory. Here's a wonderful example. The blind man who Jesus healed is a wonderful story. I mean, the point is, God prepared in their life an opportunity for glory to be found in their healing, but that in itself presumes a life before the healing that had to exist to make possible the healing. You know, it's easy to look at the healing moment and say, God is good. Can you look at the last 40 years of the man's life and say the same thing? Could he have said that? You gave me 40 years of blindness or of lameness or whatever so that you could heal me. Ultimately, that's what God can do with the clay. And so his point in having this man present for so long in this position at the temple was so that at the moment of his healing, there was no chance to discredit the reality of what happened. Now, After dismissing Peter and John, they confer to discuss what to tell the people. This is where they start to try to get their story straight on how they're going to discredit everything that's happened. The people of Israel took their spiritual direction from these men and whatever these men told the people would be largely accepted without question. That's why the leadership was able to tell the people in Jesus day after he performs these amazing miracles. Oh, don't worry. That was just done in the power of Beelzebub, you know, of, of the devil. And the people would say, oh, oh I thought he was a messiah. Well, never mind. No second thought, because these leaders had that kind of sway over the people. That was their role. And notice that as they confer in the absence of Peter and John, the leadership here are not looking for the truth. This is not an inquiry for the finding of truth. They are looking for a way to explain away the truth. In verse 16, they say, we cannot deny it. Which implies we wish we could. They want to deny it because its, an ex- its very existence is a threat to their power. And so what they do instead is they resort to the least thing they can do, which is simply intimidating Peter and John and forbidding them from speaking to anyone else about what has happened or about this name. Specifically, they say, do not speak in this name anymore. They couldn't even bring themselves to say his name. Don't even speak in that name again. And they don't want anyone else to hear it. Now, here's an insight, a great insight, into the way the enemy tries to stop the message of the gospel from spreading. He will try at times to distort the message, Or at other times to incriminate the messenger. But ultimately, those tactics fail. The message is the Word of God, the Gospel. And the messengers that go out, go out with God's power, with the Holy Spirit, even today. And though occasionally the enemy will succeed in distorting the Gospel in some corner, the Mormons come along, the Jehovah's Witnesses come along, there's been times throughout the history of the church when the message has been distorted and continues to be distorted. But it still remains in the world pure and true and known. We're studying it here that way today. So it's not gone, even as he's fighting to distort it. The message stays alive. The word of God will not go out and return void. It's not at risk of disappearing. As Jesus himself says, heavens and earth will go away, but my word will not go away. Right. So that's not going to ultimately be a successful tactic by the enemy. Similarly, he will occasionally discredit messengers. Pastors fall. People get in trouble. That happens. But God is always at work in his spirit to correct and guide and bring to to light the truth through through men. So, again, there's no way to completely discredit every Christian. And as a result, the enemy will then be reduced to persecuting and intimidating those who have the message and are resistant to temptation and are delivering the message. The only thing left in his arsenal is to intimidate, persecute in any way possible, burden or block those efforts. But usually it's through the intimidation, persecution, or temptation paths. And that's what the enemy is doing in this case. Through these men, it's now reduced to, let's just intimidate Paul and John. Verse 18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Well, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, will you be the judge? For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The leaders communicate the decision and the apostles respond with what is essentially a rhetorical question. They ask, is it right to obey God or man? And in, in taking that statement or that question out of this context, the answer is obvious. They'd always say, well, of course, you're supposed to obey God. In this context, they wouldn't offer an answer because it would have led them to agree with John and Peter. So they couldn't do that. But Peter boldly tells the leaders, we're not going to do what you just asked us to do. Sorry, ain't going to do it. Because in our mind, we're obeying God, and that's not going to be trumped by the instructions of men. Now, look at what his reason is. His reason is that they couldn't stop speaking about what they've seen and heard. That's his reason. He says, I'm sorry, we can't do what you've told us to do because we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Why? Why can't they stop? Is he saying he can't control himself? Is he saying he doesn't want to? No, he didn't actually say that. He didn't say we don't want to. He said we can't. The reason is because they have been called by Christ to be witnesses of the gospel. This happened at the very end of, of Luke's gospel. For example, Luke twenty four forty five, it says, Then he, or Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name, To all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Remember the definition of witness. We misuse this word in our culture all the time and don't even realize it. A witness, strictly speaking, it's not someone who observes something. We typically use it in that context. We witness something. We observe something. That's not what it means. The word is someone who testifies to something. The word means someone who testifies. It means someone who speaks about something they've observed. Peter and John say we cannot stop speaking about these things because we were made witnesses, which means we were made by Jesus to be speakers of these things, witnesses So someone who testifies about what we saw. And likewise, as a Christian, we are all commanded to be witnesses for the gospel. As a Christian like Peter or like John, though not apostles, of course, nevertheless, we are commanded to be vocal to share what we know and and what we understand about Christ as we've come to know it out of the gospel story and the scripture. And if we obey men who would call us to be silent for one reason or another, then we are disobeying the God who has instructed us to be witnesses. It's just that simple. At some point, I'm called to be a witness regardless of what it does in my culture. There's any number of times in which our, our willingness to be bold in preaching comes into conflict with a culture that doesn't want to hear what they don't like to hear. And ultimately, that's what it means to be a witness. That's where it rubber hits the road. It's easy to be a witness when everyone loves to hear what you're saying. It's hard to be a witness when they don't. But witnessing is not an option. It's not an option. How you do it, when you do it, there's some certain subtleties and, and, and certain choices that can be made and all of that. But whether to do it, not an option. And they've been told definitively, you cannot do it. And Peter and John have the right answer. We don't care what you think. We care what God thinks, Father. We do uh, thank you for the reminder tonight that we are called to be witnesses of the gospel, and to take our cue from from the boldness that Peter showed as he was uh, guided by the Spirit in his uh, in his presentation of the gospel to hostile crowds. Father, we know we aren't promised to see five thousand people come to to believe because of our preaching. That's not the uh, that's not the promise, Father. But it's not the number that matters. It's it's our obedience, and we do pray, Lord, that. In some small way, perhaps the, the teaching and the discussion tonight would be useful to to make us more bold and make us more certain of our need to to witness, to not fear that men would oppose us, but to trust that you have a plan, to be sensitive, yes, Father, and to be uh, to be uh, loving and 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 tenderhearted about it, but but yet still, Father, to be courageous. We do ask for that courage, and we thank you, Father, for the chance to be stu- uh, to study and and to prepare for that moment. Thank you, Father, for the gifts of. Um, of the food here tonight and of the room and just the opportunity to meet. Bring us back again next week, Father, as we continue in this study. In Jesus' name, as always, we pray, Father. Amen.